This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everybody. My name's Eric Cohn. I'm the executive editor at IndieWire, joined with uh, my colleague Ann Thompson, the editor-at-large for this live recording of Screen Talk, which hopefully some of you are familiar with. If not, you'll find out a little bit about what it entails in just a, a little bit. We want to thank Canada Goose Base Camp for having us out here to do this. It's really fun because usually we talk across the country in our pajamas and we don't get a chance to be face-to-face, much less have any kind of interaction with people in the room. So to be able to see people hopefully engage with you a little bit at the end of this conversation, and also to really take advantage of the fact that we're here in Sundance and we have real stuff to talk about as it unfolds. It's just such a cool, unique opportunity. So let's do this, Anne. I'm still trying to figure out whether this is a good or a bad year at Sundance from a market standpoint. Everybody has their own opinions. I I talked to two buyers after a screening yesterday, one of whom said that there's some kind of mountain fever going around with all this money being thrown at movies that may or may not do well, $15 million for a Bruce Springsteen musical, you know, 13 for... uh, this late, night. late night movie, which... Uh, 14 for the report. 14 for, for the big report. Numbers. These are really big numbers. Somebody else said it's a nice shot in the arm. Maybe it's a good thing for people to take these big swings. Well, there's some new buyers, too. So Apple is in the mix, which I think is really interesting. They bought Hala. Um, and it's interesting to me that, that they can compete with Netflix. And Amazon can compete. And HBO can compete. They're all being more aggressive than they have been. Uh, not last. Th- there was a year when Netflix and Amazon didn't buy anything. And that really screwed up the market in a way because there were these expectations that you'd have these deep pockets, which means the movies are expensive, but maybe they're too expensive. I mean, There's a real drive to compete against Netflix, I think, and uh, especially in the year of Roma and the 10 nominations. And there's actual um, heated, angry arguments about it. You know, a, a lot of the distributors and the exhibitors are upset. They feel like Netflix is really trying to destroy their business. And I keep saying, they're not trying to destroy your business. They're offering a different business model <laughs> that might work better than your model. I mean, one way or another, good or bad, Netflix is here. We all, or most of us have an account. Somebody the other day said they switched to Hulu, but I think that most of us are, are very much, you know, Netflix people, one way or another, and, and the direct effect that it's having on every aspect of this industry is undeniable. The question is, with these other people kind of coming into the fray, whether it's Apple or you know a year from now Disney Plus or whomever, is that going to make all of these movies much more expensive? Is it going to continue to help them get out there, or is it going to conversely create unreasonable expectations? I mean, one of the scariest things here is if you see a really good movie that goes for a lot of money and then you know, All right, so let's, let's do that. Late Night, which is, was coming into the festival, definitely um, the most high-profile uh, movie expected to sell big, and, and it did. But for, them, for, for Amazon to pay $13 million for U.S. only, that's a scary thing. It means it has to make 50 to $60 million 
in theaters, which is not, you know, that's more than uh, Big Sick. Uh, do you think movie. that Late Night is a more commercial movie than Big Sick? Well, Late Night is a movie that obviously touches on elements of the zeitgeist. It also has a TV hook. Uh, I don't know if there's a direct connection here, but the new head of Amazon Studios has a TV background coming to Sundance for the first time. There's a character in the movie who could be Jennifer Salke. And I think there is something kind of fascinating about the idea of being a newbie at Sundance with deep pockets and being able to pounce on the movie that plays really big. That movie has a lot of screenings on the schedule. I mean, The Report is the other movie, which I do think is a very strong, with the right kind of theatrical support, a very strong, it could be an Oscar contender for Adam Driver and Annette Bening. Annette Bening, as Dianne Feinstein, is so delicious so perfect. She nails it. That's the it. selling point for the movie is just saying those words. I haven't seen the movie, but I will see it because of it. It's, it's, it's Scott Burns. It's extremely dense. It has a lot of information. It's about how the Senate and this one researcher exposed the torture techniques that were used by the CIA, and the whole government is going against them. Is there torture in the movie? Yes. So that's always an interesting kind of a thing because if the ratio of torture to not torture scenes... It's a question of how dramatic it is in terms of how uh, the payoff. These, by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're rooting for these two heroes to do their jobs and, and get, get it. With those stars and everything. I just keep thinking about... You see some movies... It's a smart here. movie. It's a very, it requires people to pay attention. Right. Well, but one of the things that's really interesting about... I mean, I am not just a commercially minded person in this environment, but I find that exercise fascinating when I have nothing to lose... So I'll go see a movie that maybe could have some commercial potential because it has a star in it, but then you talk to other buyers and, and you recognize that they're seeing all these other aspects. Case in point, Clemency. A That's film the one I haven't seen. I thought Alfred Woodard was in- incredible. It's, it's, there's, I mean, as far as I could tell, her best performance, it's certainly the sort of thing that you watch it and you recognize how much we take this actress for granted, and it's sort of it's her time, right? Oscar campaign would make a lot of sense here. But it's about a prison warden who manages to not a on sexy death row. Cell. And it is brutal. You see executions. The film is bookended with executions in detail. But it's about the kind of moral conflict that she experiences. And she's just so... I I would love to see somebody take that risk and sell the movie on the basis of how amazing she is and how she's speaking to this very real problem in our society and so on and so forth. But when we're talking about films like Late Night... Something like Clemency, no matter how great the star power performance is, just gets completely dwarfed. So, so one, one interesting note is that there are f- four movies here from A24 in the competition, which, and they're all among the best-received movies here. So one of those four movies could actually win a jury prize, given the jury that we have. One of them they they actually acquired, which was The Farewell, for a comparatively reasonable $6 million. Um, And and that's very interesting, too, because that that film screened early on last Friday. Um, It was the film that I think a lot of people were anticipating would would get a strong response, and it did. But, you know, the grand jury prize element is a very fickle thing. You look at the jury, and you don't know, is there a happy medium between Tessa Thompson and Dennis Lim, for example? So anything could happen in that respect. But A24's sort of rise in this environment is quite fascinating because we're seeing it evolve. The deals that they've made with HBO on two films here, which some people are saying they they sold Native Son and and shared HBO. Other people are describing it more as a partnership. But whatever the the arrangement, it speaks to a company that has very much established itself at the forefront of whatever film distribution is right now. My definite impression is, is that A, HBO is stepping up and B, they can use A24 and their marketing 
um, and they're buzz creating uh, to make these movies work, and that's a smart move, even if it isn't going theatrically, which I find fascinating. Our instincts, you know, when you read an announcement like that is say, oh, they didn't think it was strong enough for theatrical. Well, maybe HBO is the right home for that, for Native Son, which I liked a lot. 100%. Native Son is a movie that's obviously very difficult. Anyone who knows what this book is, if you don't look it up, it's a really important piece of literature. It knows how challenging the story of this character is. He's not an easy guy to like. It, a lot of awful stuff happens to him. And, uh, and you know, it has to do with uh, race and, and, and class in ways that are not easy to watch. But the performance is amazing. It's a very beautiful film. Ashton Sanders, the middle kid in Moonlight, is the star of this. And he gives an amazing performance. And, and the thing about it is that if you... Maybe an Emmy-winning yeah, performance. That's the thing. It's, it's like, can you... So let's go back to the clemency problem, right? Can you get people to go buy tickets to a movie like Native Son? I don't know. I don't know on a Friday night how many people want to subject themselves to that, as, as horrible as that sounds. But if it's sitting on their HBO Go account and they see the trailer, they might give it a shot. And that's something that we have to take really seriously. It's part of the changing way in which things can be viewed. And it's why I think it's not really productive to just be completely pessimistic about the future of distribution. Because you come here and you see all kinds of different movies, and as we've said, there's so many different ways in which they can get out there. Even the foreign language films are getting bought this year. Monos, which was a film that I was lucky to see early this year, and I could not stop talking it up to people. It's this Colombian film. It's sort of a Lord of the Flies-inspired jungle thriller with these gorillas kids in the northern Colombian mountainside uh, was acquired by Neon in the middle of the night after its premiere. Now that's not a film that's, that's gonna a smaller. Um, yeah, but it's it's going. It's, it's a legitimate distributor. They also picked up a, a midnight movie uh, called The Lodge. So there are other kinds of interesting deals that are happening for films that don't have these crazy expectations where they need to overperform or, or whatever it is. And I think we have to pay attention to that part of the equation too. And how are the docs doing? I was just thinking about the docs because I haven't seen nearly enough of them. But I will tell you that the HBO uh, Leaving Neverland, the Michael Jackson uh, four-hour documentary, is the best thing I've seen here. Um, and it's extraordinary and brutal and undeniably true, whatever the Jackson estate may be saying. There's no way. These two people didn't know each other, the two men who were allegedly molested. One of them was 10. One of them was 7 seven years old, for years, and they denied it, and they denied it to their families, and in the end, it, it not only hurt them and hurt their ability to become successful husbands and, and, and fathers and, and, and career uh, makers, but it, but it ruined their families. It, I'm getting upset talking about it. Well, I think a lot of people have been, and there, there have even been people questioning the decision to play Michael Jackson at parties here, and this conversation is going to be ongoing. I guess the thing that I'm wondering about this film, I missed it because it was at the same time as the Farewell premiere, um, and I'm looking forward to, to experiencing it because one of the things that's hard to assess based on these initial reactions is the information that it's revealing versus the experience of, of watching the movie itself. I mean, that, that it's uh, clearly it's a lot of talking heads. Well, what they did, uh, in what they did was to really focus on the families. So it's about the impact that this had on the families over time. And the thing that gives it hope is that these two men finally sought help and recovered and healed. And, and that's part of what's moving about the way that it resolves itself. The last time that Sundance made space for the, a kind of epically 
fast-paced documentary like this with multiple parts was O.J. Made in America, which worked out great for that movie. You know, the thing that I'm kind of wondering here is, is there a point of comparison there in terms of you know, how well that did? Well, that was before they changed the Oscar rules, so this is a four-hour movie. It, I, I somehow doubt they're going to give it a theatrical release. We'll see. We'll see if they do. It's probably another Emmy contender um, in the end. Um, and then the other, um, I didn't see American Factory, but it's playing very, very well. Um, I saw a movie called Midnight Family, which is an amazing documentary about these ambulances, the freelance ambulance in Mexico City. It's a nighttime night crawler kind of thing where they're chasing after victims to take them to the hospital where they may or may not get paid. There's 45 official ambulances in Mexico City for a city of something like 8 million people. And uh, what's amazing about it is that you're in the cockpit, in the driver's seat. The guy did a great job. He had a camera on the, on the, on the windshield so that you could see the point of view of, of driving through the streets of Mexico City. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, this one wor is worth checking out. An American Factory I did see is probably one of the better, best documentaries that I've seen here that doesn't have distribution yet. Really fascinating story. Is that because it's a lot of Chinese? There's not that much. I think so. So it's a, it's an expansion of a short, and and, and you you can an go Oscar from nominated there. short about a GM Julia factory. Reichert, right? Ru Julia Reichert, right? Julia Reichert made um, about a GM factory in Ohio that closed, and then what happened was this Chinese billionaire bought it up, turned it turned it into a glass factory, and, and rehired a lot of the people who worked there, but also brought a lot of Chinese workers in. And what you see is that the the incompatibility of of Chinese work ethic with a, in, in an American context which is obviously very relevant today because this is a guy who doesn't care about workers' rights. He doesn't care about unionization. And the camera is there for all this stuff because he doesn't think he sounds like the bad guy when he's saying all these things. And they got years of footage. I think the reason why it's a tough sell is because there isn't easy payoff here. That factory still exists. It's still a challenge. They have not unionized yet. And it's, it's an interesting window into what they've been through, but it's not like the story brings you out of it saying, you know, I, I learned this, or I got, I, I got this one particular feeling. It leaves you speculating about what the future looks like, which for me is intellectually exciting, but I think it's going to be a challenge for somebody to figure out how to market that. It's all about the marketing. It's, some of the, I haven't seen it, but would you say it's an Oscar contender? I think it could be, because it's so timely, because, it, because the documentary branch does seem to reward really interesting filmmaking. You look at Free Solo being, being the front runner and the Morgan Neville film not getting nominated. And on some level, I, I think that there is this kind of really deep appreciation for documentary filmmaking skill and the skill involved here and the amount of time they put into it, the, the access. They will respect it, yeah. um, but it, it needs to get released first <laughs> for that to happen. Um, uh, the Roy Cohn documentary um, from Matt Turnauer, who's done some really good work with like Studio 54 um, and the Valentino documentary. This one is um, really a great portrait of an evil man who had an incredible influence, power broker in New York from the McCarthy era right up through Trump. Um, and Sony Pictures Classics picked it up. So that's one's going to do well. For the festival. <laughs> and they were going for stuff like that. They needed something that's maybe not, you know, a risky piece of filmmaking, but it, but some, uh, kind of something that would resonate with people. And I assume you see Trump or Trump is acknowledged since they, they were associated at a certain point in, in time. They also got the David Crosby documentary, which seems to have played very well. So you could see a certain through line there in terms of what that company is looking to push out. But it really doesn't seem like an obvious year for predicting the award season to come. 
Every year, um, I remember last year at the end of Sundance, I mean, everybody here has to pick a slice of what they can see. And it's always torture. <laughs> it is so hard to realize. I'm looking at my schedule this morning. I'm not going to see this. I'm not going to see this. It's not going to happen. You catch up afterwards. You have screeners. Some of us have, are lucky enough to have that. And I realized last year that a lot of the docs I did not see did end up being really big. Uh, there was a long list of Sundance docs that were in the race uh, at one point or another. When some stuff can be buried here and then get relaunched in RBG another RBG is the one that has gone all the way to the end. Yeah, that was one Sundance. That I think we, we had a good sense with that one when it was here. Um, that and that that it would continue to have that momentum, but then we also had it with "Won't You Be My Neighbor," and that didn't. Make three identical strangers. Three identical strangers. But that movie made a lot of money. Um, in fact, all three of those documentaries made, made a lot of money. There is a market for those things. If it wasn't RBG, they would be punishing that one too yes. for being a success. And how do you punish R you RBG? Cannot. <laughs> voting for her. You're not voting for the quality of the movie. There's another documentary here I haven't seen called Knock Down the House, which it's, it's interesting because as, from my position, having not seen the film, looking at the reaction, I just don't know what to believe because the re of course the response is positive. And they had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the big screen, Wizard of Oz style, looming down because she couldn't leave her office because of the shutdown. Like that kind of a narrative is very strong here. Film still hasn't been bought. So I'm sort of wondering, you know, one, for one maybe the challenge with something like that is you have a certain window of time where you need to get something out before the story changes, but also, you know, is the movie as good as it needs to be to keep going? Th these questions are really important because a screen at Sundance can be so misleading. Yeah, you have to see how it plays out in the marketplace, but they're obviously chasing after docs now because so many of them did well. Um, should we ask for some questions? questions? Yeah, and there's so much stuff to talk about, whether it's Sundance related, awards related, just things about the film industry. We've got a mic here. Feel free to crack some jokes if you're feeling like. Raise your hand. Here's here's a couple. Start with Carlos up front. Um, so we're wondering if you could talk about the, the international, the world cinema dramatic. It feels like it, you know a lot of these films don't get picked up. A few do, uh, like Cannes or Berlin seem like more likely uh, places for these films. Like Divine Love, which is really great. I don't think it's been picked up, and it feels like a random, strange choice for Sundance. Now, that's a really good question, because the festival, you know, it's, I think, a little over a decade since they launched their world cinema and dramatic competitions, and it's a real challenge, because how on earth do you you know, get a sales agent who's trying to sell a movie that's not from this country to start their movie at a festival that's so American-centric. You know, they'd be better off in some ways, very clearly, starting at Berlin, which is a very international, European-focused festival. Um, but there are movies that aren't hurt by being here. So something like Monos, which got distribution from Neon, really good idea to have that movie here. If you took it to Berlin, where it might be in a smaller section and not the main competition, you wouldn't get a lot of the American press that would, you know, reviewed it well here. You wouldn't get the same kind of interesting kind of reaction that pushes it forward. You know, the film also has uh, a director who could make an action movie for Hollywood, so it's probably beneficial for him to be around agents and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of thing is interesting. Um, the different buyers have um, huge acquisition teams here. And one of the things that's fun is, is after a screening to see the huddling, you know, and they're all checking in with each other to see what somebody thought and what should they buy it or whatever. But what's going on, I think, more with the world uh, uh, entries is that they're tracking them and they're checking them, and a lot of those deals will come down way later. But it's gonna be much, they're not going to happen now. To their credit, I do think they really have programmed the section better than ever before. You don't really see movies that are just there because they're available, because they're, you know, not super 
exciting or they're just sort of middling and so they're not getting into the other festivals. The, the Gabriel Mascaro film, Divine Love, that you mentioned, if you, have, if you don't know Neon Boy, I highly recommend looking it up. He's one of the most interesting filmmakers coming out of Latin America right now, this Brazilian guy. This is a, a film that I think could have launched it like Venice or something last fall. We'd been hearing about it for a long time and it just wasn't ready. So it's a smart idea to start it here because it's kind of a weird, funky, near-futuristic, social realist thing. And uh, the, the early buzz is only going to help it at the next phase because it, 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 it wasn't a bad movie. It didn't get a ton of overexposure either, and that's, that's a positive. Also, they're checking the reviews. They're checking exactly. to see who, you know, who likes what. And, and of course, they're, they're looking at Twitter to see uh, yeah. how something uh, plays there. Careful with your tweets. Flood, yeah, a flood of reactions. Um, next question. Um, uh, I wanted to mention that um, I'm glad you mentioned Monos because uh, Alejandro Landres was actually a directing fellow at the lab in 2009. So it's, uh, you can see how the work of the Institute feeds the festival often. But I did have a question, and it was, uh, do you believe uh, that a movie like um, The Farewell will benefit from this, what seems to be this newfound interest in Asian American cinema. Well, for, for, let's full disclosure, you edited The Farewell, so there, it's an important question to ask. So this is, he's even wearing farewell swag, so, but it's important, Let, let's workshop this for a second, because one of the things I was thinking about with Farewell, and we knew the price was going up on this movie, obviously a lot of people were interested in it, was that uh, it needed a good marketing plan, because you could look at it one way and say it's a foreign language film. It's in Mandarin, for the most part. I'm sure that was an interesting challenge when you guys were putting it together, but Aquafina is a movie star and uh, it speaks to a very specific American experience and in our current 21st century society I think we're more cognizant of the fact that a woman who you know lived in China who has a Chinese heritage but is from America is an American and that that story speaks to a very important subset of our population Crazy Rich Asians proved that for a certain kind of movie and the question is in the aftermath of a movie like that that's this, you know more kind of formulaic crowd pleaser can we make the you know, more serious drama type of film work along similar lines? And I think the answer is yes, with the right marketing, A24 is good at marketing. They're very good at marketing, but the other thing that's good about this, like Crazy Rich Asians, it feels real, it feels authentic, it is a personal story, very close to what actually happened to Lulu Wong, and um, they deliver it, but it has a universal appeal. So I could see this movie playing all over the world. Answer the question, do you sell it as, you know, it's a Chinese woman? I mean, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very well-reviewed film and that the, the critical reaction will, will help this. I think that it'll probably it's also play a small well. film, though, and oh, so it, yeah. it doesn't have big production values. You've know, you got to manage expectations. Right. And, and the company that got it seems like somebody that would. They're perfect, know? and it's also very moving. It made, you know, it makes people cry. So I think it'll yeah. do. I don't think it'll do very well. We don't want to spoil well. the ending, but there is a very <laughs> interesting aspect to the ending of that film. That no I spoilers. Cool. Oh, okay. Uh, do you have a question? In, in the way Scott, back, the, somebody has the Let's mic. Get the mic to, to the gentleman back there. <laughs> Pass <Teamwork>. the mic. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask if you had seen uh, Greener Grass and what was your take on it. Haven't did not. No, but but someone was saying very David Lynch like. Did you have a, a chance to see that one? Uh, yeah, I did. Do you like it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. It wasn't uh, my cup of tea at first, but then you know it, it gr kind of grew on me. 
I like the midnight section here because it's an opportunity for things to take wilder swings, and maybe they're going to be commercial, maybe they're not going to be commercial, but sometimes you just stumble into something that's just really, you know, different from everything else here, and you don't know exactly what box to put it in. You know, is it horror? Is it a thriller? Is it just this, like, trippy, dreamlike thing? Last year, seeing Mandy at midnight was quite the experience. You know, it was not exactly what I would say is a traditional midnight movie, and it was a tough sit for two hours, but... You know, the second hour of that movie is wild, so it kind of wakes you up. And then to see that come out in the world where it went to, you know, director's Fortnite at Cannes and had a totally different profile was really interesting because it got out of that midnight box. And it sounds like a film like that could do that over the next several months. Anybody else have a question? Let's pass that back around. Um, did you happen to see To the Stars, which was a black and white film? Um, Missed that, that, that one was too. Very we didn't see that one. Good that we can get yeah. some of the stars here, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll t should we see it? I think so. It was okay. set in the '60s in Oklahoma, and it was all all in black and white, and it had an extensive uh, female cast made by a female uh, producer and director, and it was uh, made in Eden, Oklahoma, in like 21 days. Well, you're reminding so. us that um, here at Sundance uh, we've had two dinners. Um, one, with one of them was here, and it was all the female directors yeah, and it's, at it's Sundance an, I mean, in one room. And it was quite a powerhouse group. Yeah, this festival has been ahead of the curve in terms of championing women directors and, and certainly has made those efforts. But this year, you really do see it coming to fruition. You look at the 53% women directors in competition. That doesn't just happen. And if, if they were just choosing movies that had women directors that weren't good, people would notice very quickly. So it does really feel like this is a significant year and that we, we've actually seen a festival in which that shows you can program that way and, and not feel like you've been forced into Of course, it. the reality is what happens after Sundance and what happens with their next movie and their next movie and do they get hired. And one of the things that I do believe is true is that there are lots and lots of people working very hard to get more opportunities for women directors. Um, and we're going to try to... If you're a woman director at this festival, there's probably a bunch of agents who want to meet with you. And uh, I don't know exactly what it was like a few years ago, but given no, that there are being chased. The agencies are definitely chasing talent. There's no question about that. And then the second dinner was the first-time filmmakers' dinner, which is also a lot of women. Um, and uh, was there a lot of overlap between the two? Fair amount. Yeah. I think it was made split. It was, and, and that I was sitting with a group of people. It was extraordinary. The people who made um, Elephant Queen, who've been working on that for like eight years. They're, they did animal documentaries, wildlife documentaries. And then they told this extraordinary narrative about this one very charismatic elephant, a woman matriarch elephant. And that's what their story is. And that's the first movie that was picked up by Apple and is going to go into theatrical release. And they're planning a, a whole franchise around this children's It's a book. husband and wife team. They've been married for over 30 years. Yeah, they talked about that. They're going to do children's books. They're going to completely uh, turn these animal characters into, you know, the next uh, Babar or something. Right. Well, hopefully yeah. not, because the connotations are different. Not, <laughs> not about uh, colonizing the world, no. Exactly. Um, and then, and then, go ahead. Let's get the microphone. You had a question over here, right? So I just want to make sure the, the microphone gets over to you. Did either of you happen to see um, Apollo 11? So Apollo 11, I happen to be a space geek, and, and I, I'm old enough 
obviously, to have seen, you know, watched the launch of Apollo 11 back in 1969. I was at my aunt's house in New Jersey. <laughs> um, and I just remember it vividly. Um, but uh, anyone who did, you know, the whole country, the whole world was watching that thing. It was an extraordinary thing. So they found these archives in um, at NASA, 65 millimeter, I mean, the most extraordinary high-res images. And there's a whole story behind how they did the technology of, of of syncing up the sound and, and trying to improve it and bring it to a level that would work in a, in a movie. And you see the scale of the NASA team, you know, on the ground, and you see uh, how accurate uh, First Man actually really was. And there's some jaw, I literally, my jaw dropped a couple of times. There's this extraordinary shot of, of, of the surface of the moon and they're going along, because it's from the point of view of, of the spaceship, they're going along and this little tiny, Thing is coming up toward the camera and it's the lunar landing. It's the eagle coming back to the mother ship to dock. I get excited about this stuff. I love this stuff too. I'd like to see the movie. It'll be interesting to see with that one how well it does. Yeah, I'm curious what the audience is for it. I mean, First Man in, in studio terms was a disappointment at the box office. Yeah, there's a question of has it been too it had long? had to do with how it was, you know, the kind of risks Damon Chazelle took. Fair, fair. Other questions? Uh, yes, Matt. Will? Okay. Will. So I was wondering, are you concerned at all about the future of Searchlight, given the fact that they have not acquired anything this year and they're usually a perennial Sundance? They haven't been buying in recent years, and, and the reason for that is that they bought the um, movie that, I'm, of course, I'm going to remember. the Birth of a Nation? No, Birth of a Nation. Yeah. No, those are two that they bought. Those are actually, I want the one um, uh, with the Australian girl who, who uh, thank you, Patty, Patty Cakes. Cakes. So Patty Cakes, they overspent in the bidding war. That was the year 2017 between where Amazon and Netflix were playing enormous prices. And in order to get the movie they wanted, Fox Searchlight paid way more than they could ever. And it turned into a huge dud. It just flopped at the box office. I loved that movie, and I understand why they liked it, but they couldn't sell it. So they did what a lot of these companies did, uh, which is to go into production. They said, if we can't acquire it at a cost that's working for us, we're going to make the movies ourselves. And they made The Shape of Water, you know? <laughs> that sort of worked out. And The Favorite, you know? The, so so they're, they're not, I'm not feeling sorry for Fox Searchlight. If, if, if they don't see what they want at the price they want it, they're not going to buy it. And they're settling into this new home at Disney. We, there's a lot of open questions there, but it's not like there's any indication they were told not to buy stuff here. It's, I think that it's being run by the same people who've been running it for years, and they know what they're doing. They're they see it, and they have the right... I mean, Netflix isn't buying either, by the way. I mean, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes or if, or if something just broke that I haven't seen on my, while we're talking here. But uh, so far, not anything. They came in with some docs, and they're, they're fine. They got other stuff to think about. Yes, sir. Um, here's what your thoughts on the next category, kind of the films that are more daring, a little more unique, not in the main competition. Have you seen any of our, your favorites? I'll turn to Eric on that one. You know, the first year that section launched, people joked that it was South by South next because <laughs> South by had taken on this really interesting identity where it would pick up a lot of these kind of edgier 
smaller movies that wouldn't make the Sundance cut, and then Sundance very smartly created a space for those movies. But the first year was kind of rough, and it took a while to find the groove with that section, and now it usually is the one that people are most interested in. By those standards that it's accrued over years, I wouldn't say that this is an exceptional year for Next, but there's some really interesting movies. The Death of Dick Long, which is from one half of the directing duo behind uh, Swiss Army Man, was probably the best I saw in that section. It's, I don't want to spoil it because there's an hour in something really weird happens, but it's kind of this goofy crime gone wrong story in Alabama. It's got a little bit of Fargo, a little bit of Dumb and Dumber, and uh, A24 has that one too. They made it. And uh, I think what's neat about that kind of a film is that in Next, it's a real crowd pleaser. If you put it in U.S. competition, people would have walked out or, or just not been wowed by it. So, you know, the, the, it still has a really important focus in that it's bringing certain films to this festival that would otherwise not have the profile that they need to succeed here. Uh, I have not been wowed by it this year, but I may have missed something too. I mean, one of the things that's also good about it is that it's not necessarily where all the hot buys take place. So, you know, something could come here and then just be a discovery and that's enough. So Eric, of all the films, how many films do you think you've reviewed so far? Uh, you know, somewhere between 24 and 50. He saw some of them ahead of time, and he banked them and wrote them ahead of time. He is not that outrageously accomplished. Right, but one right. <laughs> but um, uh, what, what's your favorite? I mean, uh, Monos, the, the uh, Colombian film I mentioned, is, is definitely a big highlight. The competition films I've really liked are the ones that people are excited about. Uh, obviously, The Farewell and Last Black Man in San Francisco, which which I thought was a really good Sundance screening. I mean, it's, it's a movie that on some level I think will have a harder time once it screens around more because it's, it's a little long. It feels almost unfinished, but it's euphoric. It's a very gorgeous tale, very philosophical look at gentrification in San Francisco. Um, so that so that was definitely a highlight from just being in the room and an American factory as well. So I would say it's it's been a good year. It's not been an outstanding year. I will say that I've seen year. a lot of movies that were solid but not great, that had something wrong with them, you know, <laughs> or they were conventional, you know. After They're the just not for you. It's more of a conventional film. It played very well for that opening night audience. That but what hasn't it, sold yet? You you're not going after those movies that don't seem like they could have much of. I mean, you're not you're not going to go see something at midnight. You're not going to go see a movie that might. Excuse it, me. <laughs> You, you do I, go to the parties. I, 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 I'm up late. I'm up late, late every night. So, but 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 what one of the things that I do like being at Sundance for is, is looking for those things that you know maybe maybe they're great maybe they're maybe they're just okay but they have real vision they're trying something they're gonna piss people off half the audience is gonna walk out another half is gonna stay that hasn't quite happened yet but you know as as well, Anne, the opening weekend is about tracking yeah. a lot of the higher profile films exactly. and now we can really get into the good stuff which is listening to the buzz and listening to what people tell us is good I'm gonna see the souvenir. I'm going to see The Sound That's of Silence. Um, I'm going to see American Factory. You should see that one. So we'll have more to argue Inventor, about. Inventor, the <laughs> Alex Gibney movie, which That's has the, good buzz. That's the thing. It's like there's, there's too much to take in. So it's not an accurate portrait by anyone's perspective. Well, look at all. Yeah, you guys have seen an entirely different set of movies than exactly. we have. There's not just it's one. wonderful. Sundays. There's many Sundays. That's right. Thank you, Eric. Hey, thanks for being here, everybody.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.